Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. All right, we have with us now Jessica Hooten Wilson, who is professor of humanities at John Brown University, where she runs the graduate program in classical Christian studies, among other things. Her books include Reading Walker Percy's Novels, the co-edited volume Solzhenitsyn and American Culture, The Russian Soul in the West, and today's topic, Giving the Devil His Due, Flannery O'Connor and the Brothers Karamazov, which came out in 2018 and should have been covered previously on this podcast, but we have we have her here with us now. Thank you for joining us, Jessica. Thank you, Mark, for catching up. All right, all right. Well, <laughs> well, you know, we, we have we have we have here we have priests, we have uh, many many uh, religious figures. I'm glad that we have a representative of the of the devil joining us today. Yeah. So so thank you for for giving the devil his his due. Now you you've got the you know the big figures, Flannery O'Connor, Dostoevsky. But your book actually opens with uh, a framework, a theoretical framework from Rene Girard, uh, the, the, the French uh, literary critic, the sort of cultural anthropologist and, and theologian, uh, in a way. Uh, and the, the focus there is on Girard's famous theory of, of desire and mimesis. Why, why don't you give us that framework so we can start? Sure. Well, René Girard is an unusual literary critic in that he came to know Christ, really, through studying Dostoevsky. So literary criticism brought him into faith in some ways. While he was working on writing Dostoevsky, he began to unpack a theory that he thought was solely in books like The Brothers Karamazov, only to start expounding upon the theory more and finding it was rooted in the gospel. So what Dostoevsky was doing in his work was, in a sense, imitating things that he was seeing in the gospel. And then Girard was finding this imitation here in the book. So Girard's entire series based on imitation. Yeah, well, the uh, Girard, I mean, he goes back into, you know, origin, you know, origin stories. But the it's it's this whole idea of the triangulation of, of desire and and the way the way one, you know an object becomes desired by one then desired by another and and so on and then it gets resolved in certain ways how does gerard lay that out yeah what gerard found was central to human beings what we really are is mimetic creatures that's what he began to discover and that we are imitative we imitate desires i mean you think about the way that you learn language the way that you um, are hungry you eat in certain things that a lot of culture around you, the models that are around you are showing you what to love and what to enjoy and what to hate, and that we're all imitating these things. The problem, of course, is that you you also come into 
um, conflict with other people when they have what it is that you start desiring. And this is what leads to conflicts in our culture is we, we imitate each other's desires. And then, you know, sometimes two people can't have the same thing. Um, so it creates that kind of triangle between the people and uh, the thing they desire. How is that kind of rivalry properly resolved? Well, in the Christian story, you have um, Jesus imitating the desires of the Father by kenosis. So he actually lets go of all of his desires. He's self-emptying. So he's imitating one who is gratuitous in giving the self away. And so the only way that you can actually overcome the conflict you feel with another over the things that you want is to start imitating this letting go and um, really emptying yourself of the things that you want. And so in imitating others that way, um, you can resolve, we can resolve the conflict. So that's the peaceful side of it. But most people know Gerard because the other side of it is most people are not going to imitate someone who lets go of their desires. <laughs> They're going to imitate the one who fights for what they want. And so this leads to violence and conflict and death. And so you see this in Dostoevsky's stories a lot too, right? Those who don't imitate the canonic savior, they actually imitate the violence of the world. And it starts with like contagion is the word he would use, um, where it leads to the next person being envious and the next person being violent. And it starts kind of this downhill uh, circle, you know, just rolling out of control. You know, it's interesting that my my closest friend uh, at Emory University for 15, 20 years was uh, something of a protege of Girard's. Uh, they were back at, they were at SUNY Buffalo together in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, when you had a very powerful collection of Scholars from France, including Foucault, uh, Michel Foucault was a visiting professor for, at SUNY Buffalo for, for a few years in the early 70s, and Eugenio Donato and others. But it was a hyper-critical, analytical, uh, post-structuralist kind of world that was moving pretty hard into the secular and away from you know, any ordinary religious faith, and Girard was going in the other direction. Did he, 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 he was, he was a devout Catholic? Yes. Yes. And I mean, I think what you see in Gerard's work, as opposed to, you know, critics like Derrida and so forth, who Gerard actually brought over to America. I mean, he was bringing these critics into this conversation, but what he was finding is that this kind of criticism, ultimately the way that you're destroying and taking apart words and narratives, it actually leads to behaviors of destroying and taking away from, and it, it feeds into this contagion, really. I mean, you, you, the critic then sets themselves up and against the work, right? Um, so even that conflict that occurs between the critic and, and the author, or the critic and the text, uh, will play out in the culture. And so the violence of our culture, he starts making a sociological argument that the way that you treat words, the way that you treat text, will lead to the way that you treat people um, and vice versa. And so for him, the only way to kind of stop that process is to lay yourself down before the work, to be read by the work. I mean, it's, it's you know, I'm, I'm probably making him more Augustinian than he would be, but, but this canonic uh, disposition that you take, right, that comes from Girard, I think you can take it before the text and actually become a better reader of the text than a lot of those literary critics. Um, you can actually receive things from the text if you're in that place rather than put yourself against the text and, and destroy it violently. Yeah. You know, I will say that 
many of those critics, uh, the American critics, the followers of, of those big theorists in the 70s, they, they could take a pretty high-handed attitude toward one who remained, uh, let's say, a, a biblical believer. But uh, my, my, the friend I mentioned, he, I mean, he became actually, he, he ran all of modern languages at Johns Hopkins. He was the chair of the, the department there. And so he was right in the middle of all this. But he and the others who I talked to, the post-structuralists, the theorists in the 80s and, and 90s, when Gerard's name would come up, they didn't have that sort of derisive attitude. They still respected Gerard, I think because they saw that this, this is a person who has dived deeply into the text as as they would always want everyone to do but also he was he was going into the worlds of anthropology and and the ancients and and religious religious thought so and I, I think that's what's one of the things that's going to make Gerard last in a way that so many of the other uh, popular theorists in in the 70s 60s 70s and 80s won't last yeah. I was going to say, it makes sense of the world to think of these things connected, literary criticism connected to sociology and anthropology, because what these writers are doing are trying to tell stories about who we are and our place in the world, um, right? The heavens, the gods, the heroes, um, the greatest questions that human beings have. And so to be a literary critic who doesn't realize that these stories become living presences in our lives that play out in how we live and act and move, uh, to separate those things, I think, is unrealistic. And so Girard, in a sense, becomes more than a literary critic because he treats literature as more than dead words on a page. He treats it as living, breathing characters that become part of our imaginations and then, therefore, part of the way that we become in the world, right? Do you want to become like Ivan Karamazov? Do you want to become like Alyosha Karamazov? And um, these are things that he, that he saw and understood. Yeah, I think that after a few years, after the excitement of literary theory and textuality and deconstruction hit, it over time, it, it just turned into a sort of a game of interpretation. How clever can you be with with words? Uh, what can you do with the text? And it, it got pretty repetitive, pretty routine, and you started to feel like the, the human stakes, which the, the, the first theorists, you could feel the human stakes, that, but that those, were, those, those had disappeared. Uh, that it did become sort of almost a, a technical expertise that really couldn't appreciate the the powerful issues that Ivan Karamazov was was really struggling with, and and that those are gonna those are gonna stay. The 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 theoretical fashions will will come and go. I agree. Well, and even the literature itself. Um, Louise Cowan, one of my teachers, used to say. Um, these books aren't great if they're not being read, <laughs> but they are great in that when you read them, then you live them. And so what happens to these books is they, they contain their life in how we're reading them and then living them out. And that's what Gerard did as a critic. So he wasn't about making the text into puzzle pieces. He wasn't about taking it apart and just looking at its limbs, you know, on a dissecting table. Um, he was about breathing the life back into them and being one of the ones that, that carried it forward and passed it on. And 
um, I think what, you know, what some of the best literary critics do, why we still dialogue with Matthew Arnold and why we still dialogue with Samuel Johnson. We, we dialogue with those who took this seriously, who understood the questions that the text was asking of us. Right. Now, when you turn to O'Connor, Flannery O'Connor and Dostoevsky, you make a you make an interesting statement. You start out by saying, you know, 19, the social scene of 19th century Russia and 20th century American South, maybe the early 20th century American South, they had a lot of strong similarities. H- how so? <laughs> yeah, it's something that I think I had to justify. Um, as someone who teaches the great tradition and who likes to put O'Connor in conversation with the Odyssey, it was never weird for me to put conversation between Dostoevsky and O'Connor. But it is for, for most readers, so they kind of need this historical justification. But you do see a lot of similarities in what they were going through because you have Russia that's always kind of combating its European influences, right? In the 19th century, um, there were writers like Tolstoy and Turgenev who were really embodying the French way of thinking, the French way of being. You have the, the czars that were kind of pulling in this legacy. And in some ways in the South, you see this with the Northern influence, right? The um, almost the secularizing influence, certain manners, certain habits, certain reserves that were coming from the North. It didn't really fit what was happening in the South in the same way that the European models didn't really fit with Russia. And that's what they were trying to pull from. Um, so you have Dostoevsky and O'Connor reacting to that and saying, no, my particular place has something to say in the conversation, but I don't have to pretend to be Northern or pretend to be French to be able to say it. I can actually show you what the South would do um, and really focus on the particularity of my region. What you also see is you see these industrializing forces and the changing global economies um, that are already starting to perk up in those regions. And that's not the same as the agrarian South or the country that, that Dostoevsky was a part of where, you know, his, his father lived in the country and, and had to deal with peasants or had to deal with freaks of the South or had to deal with the serfs. I mean, you didn't even have freedom for the slaves until 1863 in America and 1861 in Russia. They're some of the last major powers that freed their slaves. Everybody else had already done it. Um, so you also have this this tension that's being created there um, between peoples, and and they're both exploring that, right? Um, O'Connor's really delving into this uh, and how whites and blacks are going to live well t- together and be friends with one another, and she doesn't know how that's going to work and how that's going to play out. And Dostoevsky, you know, can we, if we try to make the Russian surf into this like paragon of virtue? aren't we just not recognizing that it's a person <laughs> and not giving them their full humanity? And so he, he put away those Tolstoyan ideas of um, uplifting the surf and instead looking at serfs as people and recognizing their humanity. And so there's a lot of similarities just culturally and historically that are happening for, for both of them. O'Connor said, uh, at one point you quote her saying that she writes for those who believe that God is dead. And that, of course, you know, calls up the Dostoevsky and the, the Karamazov themes as well. Now, I would say, what, why bother with them? There, what, 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 you know, what, what about what? Why not reach the, the, you know, the laity, the people who want the the inspiration, the the ones who God is dead? Uh, what does what does she want to show them? <laughs> well, I think actually, what is happening is this is what people haven't really aligned. So, in one essay, she says, "I'm writing for those who think God is dead." In another essay, she says, I'm writing for those to whom the Bible is very familiar. Hmm. So if you put those audiences next to each other, she's writing for an audience for whom the Bible is very familiar and think God is dead. 
right? This is the Mrs. May character um, who is a good Christian woman with a healthy respect for religion, though, of course, she does not believe any of it is true. That's a direct quote from Greenleaf. Um, this is the audience that O'Connor's talking to. She, she says, these are the people of the do-it-yourself religion, right? I mean, they want to, and, and Dostoevsky's looking at the same thing. She, he's seeing Tolstoy's doing the exact same thing um, at that time. From his perspective, you have people who have this legacy of Russian Orthodox belief. They understand the culture of Orthodoxy, right? It's, it's in their culture, but at the same time, they're not living and practicing it and believing it. They're coming up with their own ways of doing religion. So both of them are writing to people for whom the power of the gospel is not a real thing. It's just language. And so you see in A Good Man is Hard to Find, the gun is pointing at the grandmother's head and the misfit is saying, okay, if Jesus actually died and raised from the dead, there is nothing for you to do but follow him. But if he didn't, then there's no pleasure but in meanness in burning somebody's house down and killing, right? And this, this really puts the gun to the reader's head and says, okay, you know, the, you know the Bible story, right? But do you actually believe it? Because if you don't, then it doesn't matter if you're Hitler or Mother Teresa, right? Because there's nothing after this. Why does it matter? But if it is true, it, then it matters. Yeah, you want to say this to you, Ivan Karamazov. Look, what do you care so much about children for? What's the big deal? You're, 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 you're an atheist. Yeah, who cares? <laughs> well, why does it matter if you, a kid gets ripped apart by dogs or a kid gets shot on a hunting trip? Like, why does it matter if there's no resurrection? Right? It just, it doesn't, it shouldn't matter because it's literally just matter. <laughs> what is incarnational realism? Mm, yeah, so Dostoevsky, and this is O'Connor too, but Dostoevsky got accused by a lot of his critics as writing these kind of surrealist. That's the only language they kind of, they knew at the time. It's just these aren't realistic works because his characters were acting so extreme. And you see the same thing in O'Connor that she's writing what looked like freaks. So the way that they both responded is using similar language. O'Connor says realist of distance. Uh, Dostoevsky says higher realism. But what they're both talking about is taking the depths of things to the surface, right? The deep down questions about who we are, whether we are embodied souls, whether there's a God in the universe, and bringing that to the surface of our lives, where right now we've become immune to those questions. And we're just living what we think is ordinary realism without recognizing that every decision we make has eternal consequence. So they push the eternal to the forefront, and that looks strange and freakish. Right. Especially in a non-medieval world where the medievals would have expected to see that kind of life. Um, here you have people writing about gray flannel suits, talking about God and having dialogues about um, the existence of the devil and the demonic. And that just sounds very strange any time post 1800. And yet here they are. They're doing it. They're bringing devils to life. They're showing you the demonic influences of people's actions. Um, and that's what that's what their incarnational realism is doing, is it's bringing that sacred to play on the, or to show that the sacred is playing on the mundane. I don't want to say, I mean, people have accused me of um, agreeing with Dostoevsky and O'Connor too much when I write, write about them. Um, but I but I do. I think that the, the sacred is playing on the mundane. It actually is moving through the mundane and they're not separated the way we too often separate them. There's a scene in that in that story by O'Connor called Good Country People, where a 
this this strange character, this young man. Uh, I won't I won't spoil the story for people, but he ends up being an an instrument of revelation to this older woman who's a cripple. He, she's got a PhD. She's brilliant. She's an atheist. She's a nihilist. And this 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 young man who's really a con artist. Uh, he's twenty. He become. I mean, he, he's not educated. He's he, he's he's a. There's something. There's something evil about him. Uh, but he shows her the spuriousness of her nihilism. It, it's it's an it's an extra. But th- there, some somehow he. I, I I can see that incarnational realism working right there. Where are these these characters who might who might be you know deformed. They might be ignorant. They may they may seem to have no moral value. Turn into this uh, this word, you know, so, something something about them becomes so revelatory for for the others or for the reader, and it comes out of nowhere. You 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 don't expect these people to be the tools of of that kind of epiphany. Well, and you you've said four or five things that are really. Um inspiring there. I mean, one, for O'Connor, as a Bible reader, right, she said everyone should read the Bible in the newspaper in order to understand the world. Um, But as a Bible reader, she would say, okay, the demons are the ones who call out and mark and tell us Jesus is the Messiah. Like, the demons can speak truth, and if that was a good enough witness in the Bible, it should be a good enough witness for us. And so she has these characters that kind of speak on behalf of of the demonic, but they, they point out the truth. Right. And she wasn't afraid of that kind of witness. I think also her um, deformed characters are playing two different functions. One, we're supposed to see ourselves in them, that our own freakishness, our own. We are both angels and demons. Right. The Alexander Solzhenitsyn quote, uh, the line dividing good and evil runs between the human heart. Well, that should actually look freakish. If we are goods under construction, to use O'Connor's language, then we're literally like in process. Right. I mean, we're actually morphing into something um, from broken into whole. And that's going to look freakish. And so she actually plays it out um, in characters in front of us. And we're supposed to relate to that. Uh, She also understood that too often we we only listen to expert opinions and experts speak scientifically. They speak above our heads. They speak with an educated elite. And yet the witnesses to the truth in O'Connor come from children. They come from the weak sources. They come from the marginal sources. Uh, that that's where she found you could get away with still saying things out of the mouth of babes, so to speak. That you could still say truth from these characters that people would believe and understand and listen to. So she's so she's doing all of that. <laughs> you talk about the death of God, and I'll, I'll ask about that in a moment, but. What are the consequences then of the loss of belief in Satan? Yeah, this is something powerful in both O'Connor and Dostoevsky that I wouldn't have, it would not have come naturally to me. Um, Ever since my book has come out, people, you know, there's a devil on the cover. And so people always ask questions like, what do you think about Halloween and the fact that people dress up as devils? Um, For me, what O'Connor and Dostoevsky are showing is much more sinister than that. They're not talking about the caricatures of evil the way we would think of devils. They're not talking about Frank Peretti, where demons are fighting over your soul in the heavens. Um, they are actually talking about possession, 
which is much darker. And this is a Girardian idea, right? That if you are not modeling Christ, you are actually falling into slavery to the demonic. And that by asserting your own absolute autonomy, you are imitating the Satan, the accuser who said, I am God instead of God. And uh, so the demonic possession for them, if we don't believe that that kind of evil can remove things from us, can take things from us, can destroy us from within, then we're going to fall prey to it. I mean, if we don't know that there is an innocent, um, the ability for evil to be there, right? That we can't just psychologically dismiss evil and come up with a reason that it's there, rationalize it away. Um, all the things we try to do to say there's not really evil. There's just always a cause for problems or a cause for hate or a cause for murder uh, that, that we'll actually succumb to it. And O'Connor said the goal of the novelist then is to show us the devil that we are possessed by, right? To show the devil in the mirror. And that, that's a very frightening concept. It's not, right? God is above us and the devil is within us. That's a scary thought. Right. You know, the, you, you mentioned that famous Time magazine cover, uh, The Death of God, which came out a year after O'Connor died. Given what you just said, those, those Christian thinkers who were writing about the death of God, they were doing, that. They, they, they were succumbing. Do you, do you want to go that far? They were succumbing to Satan. Yeah, I, well, and I and, and that's that's the problem. If if you go off the Girardian idea that it's contagious, that it's sickness. I mean, you look at Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground. It begins, "I'm a sick man. I'm a wicked man." Right, and in Russian, those two words actually rhyme. Um, that our our sickness is our wickedness, and it's contagious. And we don't really think of evil that way, but that is definitely how Dostoevsky and O'Connor would have understood it. Right, in the same way that you can cough and it looks like a minor thing, but you're actually like spreading disease, <laughs> right? You're spreading sickness. So all these minor sins are actually just making the force of evil in the world grow. I know that sounds so strange to the modern mind, but that is the way that they would have conceived of it. And so just all, all of our lives make evil grow more powerful. And that's, that's what they were seeing. That's where it really becomes a problem. And, you know, we, we shouldn't be shocked when we see people committing small evils. That, that, that shouldn't be surprising at all. It's going to happen all the time. I mean, in a way, the, the, the denial of evil and, and you know, that, that, that line running through the human heart between good and evil, the denial of that turns the small errors, the small sins that we all commit every, every week, every month, turn into something that we just want to, well, we, we end up overreacting to them uh, sometimes. Or we, we end up just uh, explaining them away or pretending like they don't exist at all. And that, you know, either of those two courses is not the right way of managing that evil in the human heart. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, I don't want to start preaching, but this is, you know, what we find in O'Connor and Dostoevsky is that you have these characters um, who, if they start lying to themselves, Zosima says, above all, don't lie to yourself because you'll start believing the lie and then you will lose your capacity to love. We don't make those connections, but you see it play out in characters like Ivan Karamazov, that he starts by just playing a game with people and lying to get people riled up with these different ideas that he himself doesn't even believe. But he starts believing his own lie to the point that he does, he loses the capacity to actually love those children that he professes to care about. 
um, the suffering innocence. And he, he goes crazy. He goes mad. He's in his own room talking to the devil. His world becomes narrower, more constricted, smaller. I mean, when you are God of your own universe, your world is really tiny, right? I mean, when you worship God in Dostoevsky's novels, you get connected to a much bigger world. Alyosha gets connected to the stars and to the earth and to other children and to, to love and people. And his world expands because he's not the God of the universe. He can be part of a story that's bigger than him. But if you're the God of your own world and it's all up to you, you do you, be yourself, be your, you can be anything you want to be. I mean, all of that is a satanic enterprise that makes you the God of your own world and your world just becomes very small and confined and ultimately crazy. I mean, <laughs> Chesterton would say um, the only people who believe that, that they can be anything they want to be are insane people. And, and that's what you see in Dostoevsky. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're frightening. People who believe, who, 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 who trust in themselves you know, so much, they're, they're dangerous. I think it was Danton who said of Robespierre, He's the most dangerous man in the world. He believes everything that he says. Ah, yes, yes. No, that is powerful. That's the Grand Inquisitor, <laughs> right? That's the Grand Inquisitor. Uh, la- la- last quote. I want to ask you a question. You say near the end of the book, ultimately, violence and horror are impossible to dispel without Christ. You say that relative to your your subject. Do you believe that? Give us give us give us your final word on on that. Ultimately. Yes. Ultimately, violence because all of us are capable of the worst of human atrocity. All of us are capable of genocide. All of us are capable of Holocaust. And only by letting go of our desires and imitating the one who said, I am going to receive I'm going to follow, I'm going to obey, and laying ourselves down before that, it's the only way we cannot become the violence that is within us. Professor Hooten, thank you. Yes, thanks. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.